Grab your Bibles, and we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. And that may be a little deja vu for some of you. (laughs) But we're coming to the end of a series that we started back in February. And we've covered a lot of ground in that series over the past nine months. And I thought it might be helpful to just take a week and try to draw it all together, to tie it all back together and give us the big picture. You know, we've been... We've been zooming in and focusing on the details of some of these things. Sometimes I think it's helpful to step back out and get the big picture one more time as we wrap this up. And so trying to close out an entire series is a challenge. I've got about 140 pages of sermon notes that I went through this week. So I'd say buckle up if we need to order pizza. I think we can probably have this knocked out by, say, 3, 3.30 this afternoon if I get after it. So uh, listen fast, and let's see how this goes together. No, I'm, I'm kidding. We'll, we're trying to just hit some highlights here and uh, focus on the big picture. I don't know about you, but February 19th, when we started this, seems like a lifetime ago in some ways. In some ways, it seems like we blinked and, and here we are. But wow, that was a long time ago in, in a lot of ways for me. We'd, we'd walked through some pretty deep waters as a church, uh, some challenging times. There was a sense of, I would say, a sense of uncertainty maybe uh, would be a good way to describe it. I had just stepped in as interim pastor, and I was trying to do my best to fill two roles and uh, not doing a great job at either one. And I appreciated your, your grace and, and um, your care as, as I adjusted to the responsibilities of preaching every week and, and still trying to maintain everything else that was going on. It was a challenging time uh, for all of us. Uh, we had several family meetings during that time where we were discussing different aspects of our church and ministry uh, we looked at our strengths and our weakness. We were honest with ourselves and, and evaluating where we're at as a church. We looked at our different events in the schedule. We looked at our facilities. We looked at a lot of different things. Um, but a lot of our focus was on how can we be better equipped to reach the lost in our community? How can we bring people in? How can we welcome in new families? And, and how can we reach out to the lost? And in the midst of all that uncertainty, for me, I, I, I begin to see God bring a renewed sense of unity in our church. There was a sense of excitement and optimism, and it was quite obviously the Lord doing a work. Now, that's not something that we can manufacture on the human level, and I'm so thankful for that. As I began to pray more about, all right, Lord, where do we go? What do I need to do as the pastor, and what direction do we need to go as a church? Um, the Lord directed me to Isaiah chapter 6, and as I read through that passage, the seed thoughts for this series that we've been in begin to germinate, and I'm one of those guys that likes to have it all planned out and mapped out. I, that didn't, that's not how it worked. I kind of had three bullet points, and I had a few ideas under each of those bullet points. And just stepped out in faith and, and trusted the Lord to lead each week, and he did. And it was here in this series that we began to see a template for biblical service. How does God want us to serve him? How do we do outreach, and how do we do it God's way? You know, outreach has been something that we've talked about and 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 wanted in our church for years. I mean, it's something that we've done forever. I've been here 21 years, and, and we've had all kinds of outreach activities, whether it's uh, specific times that we focused on it with VBS and special meetings, and remember we used to do the wild game dinners and uh, the mother-daughter banquet, and there's all these, these big special events that we did in the idea of outreach. But they haven't always yielded visible results. And we can talk about that, what is true success, but sometimes I think we got a little discouraged with some of those. Like all this effort, and, and Lord, why aren't we seeing people uh, come to know you because of these things? You know, 
I've been reminded that outreach is more about a way of life than it is about big events. I've seen that through the course of this series. And I'm not saying the big events are wrong. They're not. They're beneficial. We need to have those times where we put a lot of effort and time and thought and prayer into these big events, and it's important. It's, it's kind of like the holidays, right? We just came through Thanksgiving. We know as believers that we're supposed to demonstrate gratitude all year round, but it doesn't mean that having a day to give thanks is a bad thing. Uh, both are important. I hope you think about the birth of Christ more than just at Christmas, but it's nice to have a time of year where we can focus our attention on that. So I guess my point in saying all that is both are important. One does not preclude the other. But if we're only having big events and we're not living a life of outreach on a daily basis, we're missing the boat as well. And I guess that's the big picture that I've been trying to drive home in my own life as I've been thinking about this. And one of my goals through this study is that we would see and adopt this mindset as a way of life. That we would live every day with this thought of outreach in mind. That that's just the way we would go about our daily lives. This pattern that we see from Isaiah, I'm hoping it'll change the way we approach the lost. Rather than just gearing up for big events, that we would truly live each day looking through the eyes of Jesus Christ and then responding through his heart. And it's here in Isaiah 6 that we see the pattern for making that a reality. And we'll, we'll bring it to a close at the end and kind of help us maybe to see how we can go about doing that. But what I want to do today is try to tie this whole series together. So we're going to just hit some highlights as we go through. And let's start by remembering our outline of Isaiah 6. Um, some of you may remember it. Um, if you do, um, I'm impressed. <clears throat> Sometimes I can't remember what I preached last Sunday, let alone what I preached nine months ago. Um, but as we work through the passage, we'll read the verses here in just a little bit, a little bit at a time. But this is Isaiah's vision. He's transported to heaven. And he sees God on his throne. There's a Christophany. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. We see his confession. Woe is me, for I am undone. We see a consecration and a cleansing. Thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin is purged. We see his calling from God. Whom will I send? Who will go for us? And his answer, hear my Lord, send me. And then his commission. Isaiah, I want you to go and tell. And there was a responsibility that was given to him. I think in our circles we tend to emphasize the call and the commission. And that's a good thing. Uh, the commission that we've been given to take the gospel to the ends of the earth is an important thing. But here in this passage, there's a couple things that led up to that calling and commission. And they're just as important. It's the timing that's significant here. When did God give Isaiah his call and his commission? Well, it was after he'd seen God in his glory. And it was after he'd seen his own personal inadequacy. It was after confession of sin and after the cleansing of sin. That's when he hears the voice of God. And I think that's the pattern that we need to follow in our daily lives as well. It'll be that way for us too as we see God and as we see ourselves. It'll allow us to more accurately see others. So you remember as we looked at this passage, we divided it up into three main, main thoughts, three main looks we called it. First of all, there was an upward look. Remember that? Isaiah saw God in his glory. He got, was given an accurate view of who God is. And that prompted an inward look where he began to see himself in his depravity, the sinfulness of his heart. And the same goes for us. It gave him an authentic view of himself. And thirdly, that prompted an outward look as we see the world in its necessity. And God gives us an ardent or a passionate view of our mission and I trust that'll be true of us just like it was for Isaiah. So let's jump into this. Let's take each of these points and we'll just kind of look at some of the messages that we talked about through this series. It was about 30 messages, I think, as I was going back and looking at it uh, through this series. First of all, the upward look. 
excuse me, my voice is kind of weird today. I feel like I'm back in junior high. My voice is cracking, but that's all right. <clears throat> the gray in my beard belies that, so we know that's not true. All right, let's go and read chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. What an incredible scene that we see before us here with Isaiah. And so we just worked down through this passage and we looked at the different characteristics of God that we see here. First of all, he saw the Lord. He saw God in his deity, his divinity, that he is God. The words Adonai appear here regularly in Jehovah Saba, the Lord of hosts. God is the Lord, not just a Lord, but the Lord, the ruler, the, the one that's in charge, the master. And Jehovah Saba, the Lord of hosts, this military name for God that emphasizes his strength, his power, and his might. He saw God that way. Secondly, he saw that this God is triune. He saw him in his complexity. How many of you say, I've got a firm grasp and a firm understanding on the Trinity of God? (laughs) If so, come and talk to me and you can educate me a little bit. I I understand the thoughts. I understand the theory. I understand the, 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 the nuts and bolts of it, but I can't put it together. God is way more complex than we understand him to be, and our finite minds cannot totally understand that. But all three persons of the Trinity are involved in this passage. The thrice holy God the Father, the glory of Jesus Christ, it says, is what Isaiah saw in the book of John. And in the book of Acts, it says he heard the voice of the Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit all in this passage here. He saw God's complexity. One God, three distinct persons. We move on and we see that not only is he Lord and triune, he's sovereign. Isaiah was given a glimpse of God's authority here in this passage. He sees God high and lifted up on a throne. A throne symbolizes rulership, one that is reigning. And here this God is exalted over all. He's seated on his throne calmly. We're reminded of the fact that God is not pacing frantically to and fro in the throne room, worried about all the events of this world. (laughs) No, he's not. He's got it under control. God is in charge. He is indeed sovereign. And he sits upon this throne. It's a throne of glory before which we worship. It's a throne of governance before which we bow in submission. But amazingly, God tells us in the book of Hebrews, it's also a throne of grace. And we can come to that throne of grace with boldness. What a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty, but also his love for us. It's like God holds out the scepter and says, you can come before my throne. What a a wonderful gift. We see next that God is holy. You can't miss that in this passage. If you miss the holiness of God, you're reading with your eyes closed because it's, it's front and center in the entire passage. The holiness of God, and Isaiah saw his sublimity. The, the song, Crowning with Many Crowns, has a line that says God is ineffably sublime. We, we find words that help us to describe who God is because he's so immense and so incredible. He's so, he, He's sublime. It's too great to put into words, inexpressible. And we see here that he's not just holy, but he's thrice holy. He's infinitely holy, perfectly holy, originally holy, eternally holy. He's transcendently holy. And we took time to describe all those ideas and get a, get a picture, a whole Sunday dealing with the holiness of God and what that looks like. Holiness is the very essence of his nature. And as such, he's the incomparable one and the unapproachable one. 
He's holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. He's exalted and he's supplying. Folks, this God is a holy God. And in his holiness, he is completely radically different than anything else in his creation. And this is the God that Isaiah stood before and God showed him his holiness. But on the heels of showing him his holiness, look down at the end of verse 3. He says, he's holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now God shows Isaiah his gloriousness, his majesty. (laughs) Wow. The first verse of this antiphonal chorus rang out, holy, holy, holy. The second verse answered, the whole earth is full of his glory. In the first, we see what God is in essence. In the second, we see what he is in Revelation, how he reveals himself to us. Because we can't understand, fully comprehend the glory and the holiness of God. Glory is the correlative of holiness, is one way to say it. It's what gives holiness expression. It's what allows us to understand and see the holiness of God. It's the physical manifestation of holiness. When God wanted to show his holiness uh, through his glory in the Old Testament, what did he use? You've heard the term the Shekinah glory. The cloud that was there for the nation of Israel. It, it, and, and that cloud came uh, over the tabernacle and it came down over the temple. It was the visible manifestation of the, of the holiness of God. We can't comprehend the fullness of God's holiness. We can't totally process and grasp the greatness of who he is. And so God in his love for us has given us little glimpses through his glory here on this earth. I'm so thankful for that. And folks, it's everywhere we look. That's what the passage says. The whole earth is full of the glory of the Lord. Maybe it's the beauty of a sunset. Pondered the sunset and just been overwhelmed by how big and how good God is. We were hunting over east. I love the sunsets when we're hunting. Because you're walking out of the field at sunset, you know, and and trying to get that last little minute in when, when the sun is just perfect and then all the animals are more visible. You guys know what I'm talking about. But then you're still away from camp, and so you're walking in as, as the sun is finishing to set, and the sky is just ablaze. We had a beautiful sunset one night. I took some pictures of it. It had that little shaft of light that goes straight up in the middle of it. You guys have seen that before. It's just marvelous. And all you can do is stop and reflect on the greatness and the wonder and the holiness of God. Maybe it's the intricacies of a snowflake. <laughs> Maybe it's the majesty of a bull elk bugling a challenge to a rival on a frosty morning. Can that show the glory of God? Absolutely it can. Get your heart pounding a little bit too, especially if you've got a tag in your pocket. How about the delicateness of a wildflower? How about the geometric perfection of the spider's web? Does that show the glories of God? How about the amazing wonder of birth? How does that even work? How does God allow that to happen? And then the amazing growth that comes from that new life. I think about the warmth of love. The wonder and the gift of relationship. I think about this mind-boggling expanse of space that we see around us that just goes on and on and on, and we can't even process how big it is. And then on the flip side, this minute detail of a world that's only visible through the lens of a microscope. And all of these things display the glory of God. All of these are reflections of God's holiness. And he gives them to us so we can have a fuller, deeper understanding of who God is. And that brought us to our last point. Not only is he Lord and triune and sovereign and holy and glorious, he is also a big God. We saw him in his immensity. We took a little children's song. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. 
And we looked at six illustrations, reminders from Scripture that nothing is too hard for our God. Passages where it says that, nothing is too hard for God. Is there anything too hard for God? Six of those, and we, we looked at those closely. And we were reminded that our God is not limited by age. He's not limited by numbers. He's not thwarted by the power of Satan. He's not bound by the natural laws that he created. Folks, he is God. And because he is God and he's big, he is still able. And he's still willing to do what he wants to do in our midst and in our lives and in the lives of of our church. Folks, God's never encountered a heart so hard he can't soften it. He's never encountered a mind so set he can't persuade it or a will so stubborn that he can't break it. But he still gives mankind free will. But if we pray God is able to do the same work of conversion and salvation that he's done throughout, throughout the entirety of history, our God hasn't changed yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same. And we serve a big God. And it doesn't mean that we don't have struggles and impossibilities in our lives. But God is bigger than those impossibilities. And that's part of what Isaiah saw as he saw God high and lifted up. But what was the result? As Isaiah saw God in his glory and in his immensity and his complexity, all of these things, it prompted an inward look. And let's go on in our passage to verse 5. And then Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips. Thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. We see from an upward look to an inward look. And so we took some time as a church to work through this section as well, personally and corporately. The idea, we talked about putting our house in order from a a corporate perspective and a personal level. Allowing God to shine the searchlight of his holiness into the recesses of our own hearts. Take the coal from off the altar and touch it to our lips. It was a challenging section. We see here from the example of Isaiah, his confession, this, this cry of intense conviction, a cry of dismay, a cry of distress, woe is me, I am undone. And that's what happens when we get a, a, a firm grasp and a close look at the holiness of God. It's the universal response of those who truly encounter God as Isaiah did. We fall on our face before him. There was both a personal and a corporate side of his confession. Uh, Personally, we see the personal pronouns, right? Then said I, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. He, He took ownership and that personal responsibility for the sins that were in his life, but also there was a corporate identification. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He took the ownership of a people that was not following God. And he says, I'm identified with them as well. And he didn't blame them or put them off. He says, I'm part of this nation. And so there's some guilt by association here in my life as well. But as he fell on his face before God and as he gave his confession that we now see his consecration and cleansing, God brought Isaiah into the throne room not, not to destroy him, but to consecrate him and to cleanse him. And to prepare him for a mission of service. I love what God does here. Was punishment justified in Isaiah's case? Absolutely. It would be in our case as well. A sinful person standing before the holiness of God deserves judgment. But instead of punishment and judgment for Isaiah, 
We see God's mercy and we see his grace. It's shown for us in three effects. We see the cleansing of his lips as the coal comes and touches them. We see the removal of his guilt and we see the atoning of his sin. Wow, what a beautiful picture. It's a good reminder for us that when God brings us close to himself, it's not to punish us. Oftentimes it's to purify us. It's not to shame us. It's to cleanse us. It's not to impugn, but to empower. And I would say this, let's not dread the coal of consecration. I'm not saying it's fun, but it's a precious thing. Because the fire that burns within our Lord will at once remove the impurity in our lives. It'll deepen our fellowship with him, and it will also empower our service. That's the purpose. Sometimes I think in our, mind, our lives that's the missing ingredient. So after we saw the example of Isaiah, we wanted, went on and looked at, at introspection for a little while. And again, it was challenging. It wasn't always comfortable. I'm thankful that God gave us a couple of breaks in the middle of it so it wasn't quite so heavy. Um, but it, it, it's hard. We started at the starting point. First message in this series was, are you real sure you're saved? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're a believer? Ten hallmarks of what it looks like to be a Christian. Uh, that, that verse, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. We took time and dealt with that. And we asked the question, has there ever been a time in your life when you recognized that you were a sinner, that you repented of that sin, that you realized Jesus died in your place and he paid the full penalty for your sin on the cross, that you received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior by accepting his gift of eternal life? Have you done this? Have you made it personal? Has that happened to you? And then the second follow-up question to that is, does your life back up what you say? Is there a change? Is there a difference? Are old things passing away and all things becoming new? Is there evidence of the life of Christ in your life? It's safe to say there's no such thing as a person who's always been a Christian. It's always a red flag for me as I'm talking to somebody and say, well, you know, what do you believe? Well, I've always been a Christian. Well, that's not true. You may have grown up in a Christian family. You may have read the Bible and identified with the Christian faith, but you, you weren't always a Christian. That happens at a point in time. No one ever made it to heaven because they were a good person. No one ever entered heaven on the merits of church attendance or generous giving or selfless service. That's not what it's about. It's repentance and receiving the gift of salvation and, and, and uh, believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died for your sin. Salvation only comes through a personal faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that was the natural starting point for introspection. Maybe it seems strange to preach a message like that to people that have been saved longer than I have, and longer than I've been alive for some people. Praise the Lord for that longevity in our church. But it was something that needed to be said. We moved on from there to a parallel in the New Testament, a series of messages called Happy Are the Sad. Do you remember that? I went to Matthew chapter 5 where it says, blessed are they that mourn for their sin, for they shall be comforted. A beautiful parallel in the New Testament to what we see back here in Isaiah chapter 6. We talked about what it means to mourn over our sin. We talked about repentance. The word for mourning being the most intense word for mourning in the New Testament. It's like grieving over someone that has died. It's that intense of a term. To be possessed of such a deep inner agony that the sorrow cannot be concealed. When have we felt that type of, of intense agony over the sin that's in our hearts and lives? We talked about repentance being a change of mind that results in a change of heart, but that's verified over the course of time in our life. We identified some of those things. I put a chart in your notes that just kind of ties that whole section together. 
Um, there's a lot more that could be said, obviously, but I think that helps us to see the nuts and bolts of it. Comparing false repentance with true biblical repentance. What are the differences? Uh, we gave some examples. Remember the false repentance examples of Cain and Saul and Judas and others. What was Cain's big issue? He was sorrowful for what? The consequences of his sin. And that's, that's not a bad thing, but that's not true repentance. Saul expressed regret over what had happened in his life, again for the consequences. And Judas, he showed genuine remorse, I believe. But it didn't get to the point of true repentance. But then you look at David. Wow, what an example of true biblical mourning. As he came to the end of himself and he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. The prodigal son is in the, 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 the pig pen. <laughs> and he comes to himself and he comes back to his father. What a great example. The evidence of false repentance is a minimizing of sin. It's a making excuses for sin. Biblical mourning accepts full responsibility. It owns it. The emphasis for false repentance is turning from sin. The biblical perspective is turning to God. There's a difference between the two. We see both involved there, but the focus has to be on turning to God. And the essence is the wrong or the sin. Biblical mourning is the broken fellowship with God. That's what I struggle with more. The end game for false repentance is I want to live good so that I can feel better. <laughs> I want relief from these horrible circumstances and, and the punishment, the consequences that are coming to me. But in biblical mourning, the end game is I want to live godly so that I can have restoration. I want to be rightly related to my God once again. And then the effect of false repentance is little to no change in behavior. Maybe we could say it better. There's no long-lasting change. There could be a change for a time, but it's not going to last uh, it's not going to be long-lasting. Oftentimes, that person will end up in resentment and bitterness, and we saw that with Saul. Further sin and despair and grief because they didn't handle the sin properly the way God wanted them to. Oh, but the biblical mourning side is a changed life and spiritual growth. There's a restoration of fellowship. There's blessing and comfort. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. What a beautiful passage that we looked at there. Well, in this section, we moved on, number three, to how to handle hurts biblically. We talked about the topic of bitterness. You know, we live in a, we live in a pretty messed up world. And hurts are going to be a natural byproduct of the life that we live in this world today. It's just going to happen that way. We were reminded that peace and unity are vital to the health of our fellowship, but bitterness will stifle both. They can't coexist in the same place. So since hurts happen regularly, we need to know how to handle them biblically. Bitterness is strong feelings of hatred or resentment or animosity. And it can be directed at a person, but it can also be directed at circumstances. Have you got angry or bitter over circumstances in your life that you didn't have control over? Maybe it wasn't tied with a person, but it was tied to a circumstance, an event. We looked at, at Naomi and were reminded in that passage that she was angry against circumstances, but ultimately, who was she bitter against? God. And that's what it boils down to. That's why it's such a big deal. How we deal with the hurts of life will determine whether we become better or bitter. Bitterness is strong feelings of hatred and resentment and animosity. I've been wronged and I don't want to let it go. I want to hold on to it because it gives me a sense of satisfaction. I can hold it over somebody. And we harbor that hurt in our heart. And, and as believers, we can't go down that road. <clears throat> we talked about different levels of offenses. Remember this, level one offenses? <clears throat> maybe a little more minor. Sometimes they're just perceived hurts or imagined hurts. You know, somebody said something, we took it wrong and we got offended. They didn't mean it that way at all, but that's just how we took it. 
And how do we handle that? Well, you know, there's a point where we just let love cover a multitude of sins. We just, we just can move past that, let it roll off of our backs. Sometimes we do have to go back to that person and say, hey, you know, you said this and it really hurt. Let's clear the air, right? And you get that worked out. Second level is level two, offenses that sting a little more. They hurt a little more deeply, and, and they might not go away on their own. This one, you may have to go back to that person and say, hey, you know, I don't know where this is coming from or what's between us, but can we talk? I want to be rightly related to you. I want to have a good relationship again, and so we work it out. But then there's level three offenses that are serious hurts. Sometimes these are deep wounds that have, that have been inflicted over a period of time, and they go deep into our hearts and deep into our souls. How do we deal with that? Especially after if we've let it fester and, and it's led to bitterness. And we talked about two words in this context. I, there's so much here, I, don't, I can't re-preach the whole series. Um, but two words, forbearance and forgiveness. Remember those two words? Uh, forbearance is the idea of patience and long-suffering and tolerance. It's, it's how we respond to level one and most level two type situations. I just have forbearance. And there's two aspects to that word. There's a bearing with somebody, but there's also a bearing up on that person where I help to strengthen and support them as well. And that's forbearance. But then there's forgiveness. No matter how deeply somebody has hurt me, nobody has hurt me as deeply as our sin hurt Jesus Christ. And what did he say as he looked out from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What an example for us in regards to forgiveness. Forgiveness is an act of the will where I release the offender from the offense. I choose to let it go. I no longer hold it against him again. And in doing so, I'm making three promises. I promise to never bring it up against the offender again. I'm not going to hold it over his head. I'm making that choice, that commitment. I'm not going to bring it up to other people again. I'm not going to gossip about it. I'm not going to go to someone and say, hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? I'm making a commitment not to do that. And then thirdly, I'm making a promise to not brood on it in my mind. And that's going to be the hardest one to keep. Because our minds play tricks on us, and they want to bring it back, and they want to replay the story over and over. And, and you may have to go and ask forgiveness of the Lord for breaking that promise on several occasions. It's just going to happen. Uh, I, I know times I've been hurt where it didn't just go away instantly. It's not a magic potion to say, I forgive this person, <laughs> because the hurt's still there. But as it comes back to my mind and Satan brings it back in front of me, I go to the Lord and say, Father, I don't want to live this way. God, I've forgiven this person. Help me to live in light of that forgiveness today. Purify my mind. Help me to think of other thoughts. Wow, it was, a, it was a challenging section, wasn't it? But I think the reminder here is it was important to go through because if we desire to serve our Lord with power, our relationships have to be right. Both vertically, our relationship with God, and horizontally, our relationships with other people. That's a prerequisite for having God's power as we look to do outreach. So a reminder for us to keep our houses in order, personally, and corporately. We had that inward look. Well, we got next to the outward look, and this was the point of the whole series. It's where I wanted to get. The other points were all preparatory. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 8. Isaiah says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell. We're not going to take time to read down through the rest of those verses. It was a difficult commission that God gave to Isaiah. But God was preparing him, and he's preparing us for what was to come next. <clears throat> we saw his calling and his commission. God says, who can I send? Who will go for me? And I love Isaiah. It's like his hands waving, pick me. <laughs> pick me. I want to go for you. I want to be the one that serves you. 
And God gives him this commission. It, it, God called him to a consuming ministry. When he says go and tell, it wasn't a, a one-time action where you're going to go and fulfill this one responsibility and then you're free from the commitment. No, the idea behind that word is a lifetime commitment, a lifelong pursuit. This going became his life. What a great reminder for us. As we've been given that same commission, and we should go, and that should be just the, naturally the way that we live our life. It was a consuming ministry. Second, it was a challenging ministry. If you read down through the rest of those verses, he, it, was a hard, it was a hardened audience that he was going to. That reflects our culture today too, doesn't it? We go out and we talk to people about Christ, and they're not just naturally uh, bending our ear to hear more. It's a hardened audience. But I love the third aspect. God called him to a confident ministry. You read down through there and you see that eventually this ministry was going to bear fruit. And even if it didn't in Isaiah's day, aren't you thankful that he fulfilled that commission? Aren't you thankful we have the book of Isaiah? Could you imagine thinking about the gospel and our understanding of the New Testament without the book of Isaiah in our Bibles? What a difference that would have made. There's significant parallels between Isaiah's calling and our calling. I'm not going to get into all of that again, but it's something to remember. In this outward look, we saw that we are to go as Jesus went. And so we took several weeks to just look at different encounters, spiritual encounters that Jesus had with the lost. We saw, first of all, that we need to see the world through the eyes of Jesus Christ. That was in Luke chapter 4. We saw how he sees the unsaved, bankrupt and broken and bound and blind and bruised. It's a reality check. Because I don't think as we look out over our community, we see people that way. Some of the lost people that I know, they look like they've got life all together and everything's perfect for them. <laughs> we know it's not. But spiritually, where we can't see, where only Jesus can see, the truth comes out. And we're to bring them the gospel because this gospel brings blessing to the bankrupt and it brings healing to the broken. It brings freedom to the bound and sight to the blind and it's a balm to those that are bruised. We have the answer to their problems and we need to be willing to take it to them. But Jesus looked out through this world through his own eyes and he wept over Jerusalem. He felt a tremendous compassion in the depths of his soul. We learned that little song, help me see this world, dear Lord, as though I were looking through your eyes. Remember that? I, I trust that that's been etched in your memory and that you, it comes to mind on a regular basis. Not only seeing the world through the eyes of Christ, but then also responding to the needs of this world with his heart. Another message from Luke chapter 7. And we were reminded here that love sees, it's perceptive, it feels, it's compassionate. Love speaks, it's propositional. Love acts, it's practical. And then love impacts, it's powerful. And we can have that same power in our lives as we demonstrate the perception and the compassion of Jesus Christ. From here we moved on to different gospel encounters with Jesus, and we're just going to go through these quickly because it was the most recent part of our study. But you remember the divine appointment? As Jesus met with the woman at the well, it took three weeks, four weeks, I don't remember, it took a long time to get through that one. What a beautiful story. It's a reminder that we need to open our eyes to hurting people and be willing to share the gospel with them and not be put off when they're antagonistic or sarcastic with us. To try different angles, to present the gospel in different ways so they can understand it. From there, we moved on to an unlikely convert, the man Zacchaeus. Got a different take on Zacchaeus than the one you got in Sunday school in that message, didn't we? Learning to love the one who challenges our sense of justice. Learning to love somebody that we may not truly like. We moved then on to a third 
series an unsuccessful encounter, remember the rich young ruler. A reminder that not every person we talk to is going to trust Christ. And that's okay. It doesn't mean we failed. It means that we've fulfilled our, our responsibility. We need to develop a proper definition of success as we take the gospel to this world. It's also a reminder that we don't water down the requirements in order to gain a convert. This seemed like a person that, that would come to Christ immediately. He was coming with that perspective. But Jesus kept the requirements where it was. And, and I think we can also say this. Every person has an obstacle that's keeping them from trusting Christ. For this man, it was his wealth. It was his security that he had in money. And if we can find what that obstacle is, that will be that much closer to helping that person overcome that obstacle and see Jesus Christ. Well, from there, we went on to the story of Nicodemus, a man that was religious but lost. And we talked about the importance of sharing Christ with religious people and the challenges that come from doing that. It's not easy. It takes time for that person to understand the truth and to acknowledge that the former way of belief uh, was wrong. That's hard to come to grips with that. It takes time, and we need to be patient in that. Well, then we spent a few weeks looking at the gospel encounters of other people. I remember Philip in the Ethiopian, this providential encounter as God takes him and brings him there to the desert uh, south of Gaza and allows him to share the gospel with this man. Uh, we were reminded that when God senses a seeking heart, he sends a willing servant. Oh, that we'd be those willing servants that God can send to the seeking hearts in our valley. We were reminded in this section that questions are excellent ways to begin spiritual conversations and to gauge spiritual readiness. Ask the right question. Use it as a prompt to, to give the gospel. Well, from there, we went on to Athens, and we saw Paul before the Areopagus, before the Supreme Court there in Athens. The sightseer became a soul winner there in that passage. And Paul's perception as he walked around that city led to a deep compassion, which led to fervent action. He couldn't help himself. He had to do something. And so he went and reasoned in the synagogue, and he went to the marketplace and interacted with whoever would come by. And before long, he's having conversations with philosophers, and they invite him up to the Areopagus, where he now presents the gospel before the entire Supreme Court of Athens. And we learned in this story that we need to be observant. We need to find ways to take everyday, ordinary circumstances and situations in life and then segue, transition to the gospel from that. Wonderful lessons we learned from the Apostle Paul in that section. And then we wrapped it up just last week with the power of testimony. Paul before Festus and before King Agrippa. And he uses his testimony. He shares how he came to Christ with the hopes of bringing Agrippa and Festus to the saving knowledge of Christ as well. And we learned it kind of an outlined what a testimony looks like. You find a point of connection. You share with them what your life was like before Christ. You share with them your encounter with Christ, and then you share the difference that Jesus Christ has made in your life, and then you challenge them to that same life, challenge them to believe. What a great outline for developing your testimony. By the way, are you working on that? We're going to talk about that a little bit more this week. I don't expect it to be finished and polished. It was Thanksgiving week after all, so uh, we'll give you a little bit of a, you know, a little credit there, but uh, we'll talk about that more in our evening service. But this passage, an upward look, an inward look, and an outward look. My question for us in the minutes that we have left is where do we go from here? <laughs> How do we keep this from just being a nine-month sermon series that we came to church and we enjoyed and said, well, Pastor Mark, great message, and you walk out the door and nothing changes in our hearts? How do we keep this in front of our minds? How do we help this to stick? Because human nature is, is human nature, and we're going to forget. I'm going to forget. I'm going to do my best to keep this in front of us on a regular basis. 
But how can we go about not going back to life as normal? I think the answer to that is this. We need to keep these three looks in front of our eyes every single day. Now, I realize that in this story, this account that we saw here was a one-time dramatic, life-altering event for Isaiah. We get that, right? I mean, how, how could it not dramatically change his life? But I wonder if we were to take these principles that we see here, and if we were to apply them to our lives every single day, as you start your morning and your time with God, what if you were to think through each one of these aspects as a part of your time of devotions? As you open the word, as you talk to the Lord, look up and see God on his throne. Every single day, uh, ask him to reveal his glory like he did to Moses. Read the scriptures looking for him. Try to not leave your time with God without a renewed sense of how great and how wonderful our God is. Every single day. And then during your time with God, look within and spend some time in introspection. It may not be as in-depth as what we did during the course of this study, but say, God, is there something in my life that's standing in the way of a closer relationship with you? And as he points it out, confess that sin and experience the cleansing that comes from that. What a wonderful gift that is. And we should do that on a, on a daily basis and get to the point where we're so sensitive to the Spirit of God that any time something comes in, that, that harsh word that crosses our lips or that attitude that comes out that's not Christ-like, we're, we're immediately convicted by that. And we immediately say, God, I'm sorry. God, that was wrong. God, I need your forgiveness. God, I need your help in my life to live our lives that way. And as we do that, looking up and then looking within, and then in our prayer time in the morning, look out and ask God to help us see the loss through the eyes of Jesus Christ. If we do that every single day, it'll keep these principles in front of us. And I think it'll make a difference. Here's what I think will happen. With sin confessed on a regular basis, we'll have a heightened sensitivity to the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're going to sense when he wants us to talk to a specific person. We're going to have that connection with him. We're going to have a big view of God, and because of that, we'll possess a confident expectation in the power of God to save. We'll realize that if I go to this person, God will give me the strength, and God can do a work in his heart. We're going to see God as big, and even though we feel inadequate, God's bigness will make up for our inadequacies, and we'll see that every day. And with those factors in place, answering the call like Isaiah, here am I, send me, will be a natural result, a daily result. Well, it's my prayer that God will continue to burden our hearts for the lost. We've got a lot of work to do here in Columbia Falls. God's got work for each one of us to do, and I'm praying that he'll continue to purify my heart and our hearts, that daily he'll reveal to us more of his greatness. And as we do that, we'll find ourselves empowered for service. Would you pray with me that God would give us specific fruit for our labors? God wants to do it, and I think he will if we'll ask him to do that. Father, I thank you for this series that we have worked through this year. Father, the, the passages that you brought to mind and the way that you just helped put it together, Lord, I thank you for that. So much truth that we've looked at. Father, you've worked in my heart and in my life through every single message. You've challenged me. Father, I don't want this to be something that just gets put in a, in a filing cabinet and I forget all about it over the next weeks and months. Father, I want this to be something that is on my mind every single day. God, not that we wouldn't do the big outreach activities, those are important, but that we would live every single day through the eyes of outreach, realizing that as we go about our daily lives, we are ministers, we are ambassadors for you. And we need to take this message through our lives and through our lips to the lost world around us. God, help us to do that. Thank you again for your love for us. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin, the cleansing that comes from that. Thank you for salvation. Thank you that you're a big God. 
Oh, Lord, so many expressions of gratitude that we can find through this series. But God, I pray that you would change us, that you would make us more like Jesus Christ, make us effective ministers for you. And Lord, for that, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.